Verge podcast with Real Lit. Yeah, we've got Gwen Chennai on the show today. For listeners not familiar with Gwen, who is she? Gwen is a partner at Coastal Ventures on the investment team. She was previously a partner at Indie Bio and SOSV, where she covered bio and artificial intelligence. For those not familiar with Indie Bio, we did a deep dive on the program with Arvind Gupta and Poe Bronson on the fourth ever episode of this show about a year ago. Uh, so give that a listen if you're interested to learn more about what they're up to at Indie Bio. Um, prior to IndieBio, Gwen was the founder and managing partner at Galapagos Ventures, an early stage venture fund focused on the intersection of biology and AI and ML or machine learning. Gwen was on the board of advisors at Singularity University Ventures, which is an impact focused accelerator. Prior to joining the venture world, Gwen spent 18 years on Wall Street investing in public equities. She started her career at Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and was a portfolio manager at a $300 million innovation-themed hedge fund. She also has experience doing wet lab research at UCSF in immunotherapy in the realm of glioblastoma. And so I am incredibly excited to talk with Gwen today and welcome her to the show about her personal journey from Wall Street to the venture world. And, and even more so, she has lived at the intersection of biotech for most of her career. So I'm really excited to learn more about her investment thesis at that at that intersection. Now, you know a bit about moving from Wall Street to early stage investing, but how unusual is Gwen's career path working that way? I think it's fairly unusual, although probably more common these days than it has been in the past. But you know, typically you, you think of companies making the progression from an incubator and accelerator like IndieBio to, you know, being backed by your know, venture capitalists to, you know, potentially going to Wall Street and going public and all those sorts of things. So, you know, Gwen and, you know, I did this many years ago as well as you sort of make the reverse journey. And there's a whole foundational skill set that for me, I brought with my with me to early stage investing that I learned on Wall Street. And, you know, I want to talk to Gwen about how applicable what she did on Wall Street is to her role as a investor at Kosla, but there's a lot of things that are very different as well. So I'm excited to hear how Gwen thinks about, you know, creating value in the early stage world, how to think about valuation, right? Things in the early stage venture world are not as driven by financial metrics, for example, like they are with public companies. So I'm excited to get into some of those nuances and, and hear Gwen's take. Uh, how do you think that might shape the perspective? Does it play a role in, in thinking about exit strategies or other things? Well, I'm, I'm sure it does to, to a degree. I mean, I think there's a lot of what Gwen probably learned on Wall Street that's applicable to being able to evaluate and analyze a company, um, whether it's from the financial perspective or just doing diligence on the science, right? I mean, diligence is diligence at the end of the day. So I'm sure there's a lot of tools that she has that are applicable. But I, I think it does give her probably a unique perspective in terms of the appetite for public market investors and what public market investors may be looking for in, in a company or early stage 
technology and what she needs to do as a early stage backer of companies to get a company to the point where they might be attractive to the public markets. So I'm sure that that's a, probably a unique insight that Gwen has. So I, I'm excited to talk to her a little more about that. And, and also that, 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 that transition, right? So Gwen has spent most of her career at that intersection of bio and tech from her days on Wall Street to what she's doing now in the venture world. And so I'm really excited to learn about what excites her the most about those areas, what they're investing in at, at Coastla, what they're looking towards in the future and get into some of those details. Oh, what are you hoping to hear from her today? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to hear sort of exactly that, right? Their investment thesis at Coastla, maybe some of the companies they've invested in recently, what gets them excited at the end of the day? What are some technology trends that they're excited about? Why Gwen is so excited and why she chose to spend most of her career at this, at this intersection of, of bio and tech. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a lot to dive into from you know the business models of the companies that they're looking at to some of the nuances of the science. Well, you're all set. Let's do it, Danny. Gwen, thank you for joining us today. I am incredibly excited to welcome you to the show. Thank you for having me. So today we are going to talk about investing in early stage biotech, the opportunities being created by the increasing convergence of tech with biotech, and your personal journey from Wall Street to early stage venture investing, which is where I'd like to start. One of the things we like to talk about on this podcast is culture. There's two cultural related topics I'd like to start with today. First, we usually talk about culture in the context of early stage startups on this show, but you spent 18 years of your career on Wall Street, first as an equity analyst and later as a portfolio manager of a $300 million innovation-themed hedge fund. How different do you find the worlds of Wall Street and managing a hedge fund to the world of venture capital and venture investing? Uh, really great question. I get this often. Um, I, of, I often joke that I started on the dark side because a lot of folks in VC think, <laughs> think of uh, Wall Street folks as the dark side. And I have to clarify, no, I was never, uh, I worked for investment banks, but I was never an investment banker. So that sort of makes everyone feel better. Um, but comparing sort of the Wall Street side, public equities, which is, you know, you can essentially think of public equities as very late stage companies. And then early stage companies is, you know, where I focus right now. Um, I'd say if you're thinking about switching mm -hmm. over to early stage venture, uh, don't do it if you think it's cushy, because <laughs> it's definitely a lot more work than um, <laughs> than when I was at hedge funds. Uh, you know, hedge fund managers, uh, they like to say, you know, we work 70 to 100 hours per week. Um, I'd say that the total number of hours for early stage venture is definitely more than that, um, especially if you're a full stack VC where you do, you know, the technical diligence, the business side of things, and then you get the companies into the portfolio and it's on you to work with the companies all the way until essentially IPO. That's a lot of work. And most of that work is, you know, it's unlimited hours. Um, we were just chatting about the holidays. Um, you don't really take any days off. Um, there was a, a tweet um, that got a lot of attention where one VC said, you know, there's no out of office message uh, for early stage founders. If you're a full stack, hands-on VC, there's no out of office message for you either. I mean, even if you put that on, uh, I'm still checking email every day. Um, so I'd say, you know, it's definitely not for um, less work. I'd say, um, you know, clearly the one difference is, um, so even when I was in the hedge fund side, I was uh, at long, I was in long only, or I was in very concentrated positions where, you know, maximum portfolio 
had 27 positions. So it was never, I was never in a day trading shop. So that part of it translated directly into early stage venture where, you know, when you're in a company, you're in. Um, the average holding period at some of the funds that used to work at were eight years, which is exactly early, early stage venture. Um, so all these parts, I think, uh, translated directly. I'd say that the benefit for me has been um, I intuitively think about business models, how the company is going to make money, what's the market, who are the other competitors, um, how are your customers. So first of all, payers and customers might be different parties, right? But how are your customers using the product? What are the incentives of the payers? So these just come automatically to me. Um, so I sort of parallel track both the technical side, the science side that I'm very passionate about, but I'm not distracted enough to not care about the business side. So that's been, um, you know, a, a welcomed advantage. Gwen, you, you mentioned the term full stack VC a couple of times. For, for our listeners, can you describe what you mean by full stack VC? Uh, happy to, because I just came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. You know, I, I don't really know... Um, I, I didn't know how to explain this uh, until, you know, a few months ago. I remember I was talking to uh, actually a Stanford professor um, in engineering and he sort of, you know, I was asking him a couple questions. He sort of looked at me puzzled because he looked at my background and he said, oh, I thought you just do the 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 numbers side. Right. And I said, no, like, you know, the, I think this might be um, particular to Coastal Ventures where I am right now, um, you know the partners do everything, you know, there's no, there's zero outsourcing of the work of the technical work of the financial work. And then once you get the companies in, it's on us to work with the portfolio, with uh, the founders. Um, you know, you know, I think some of our, some of our partners have admins, but the admins do more of the scheduling of calls and whatnot. There's no, none of the zero of the decision-making is outsourced. That, that's really interesting. And I, I do want to dive into your process at Kosla. But b- before you do, I, I want to go back to the culture question. Um, and, and, you know, particularly as, as, a, as a woman on Wall Street, right? I mean, at, at the time you were coming up on Wall Street, it was very much a male dominated culture, probably still is in many respects. Did that pose any particular challenges for you as you started and, 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 and sort of built your career on Wall Street? Um, so this is a question I, got, I get a lot as well. Uh, so I think back in, if I remember correctly, it was 2016. I was actually interviewed because I was uh, a, a female portfolio manager, which I thought was very uh, odd because, you know, I just think of myself as a portfolio manager. But, um, you know, um, I think the official number is that 9% of hedge fund managers are women or, you know, portfolio managers are women. But if you exclude the ones that are ETFs, um, so essentially not active trading, right, or not active decision making of um, position sizing and the picking of the stocks, it's closer to 2%, 2 to 3%, right? So that's actually very close to the percentage of female founders that get funded. So in a way, um, you know, uh, yes, I switched from late, very late stage companies, which are public companies to early stage companies, but you know, the environment hasn't changed that much for me. Um, I think, um, I probably got very lucky that I was raised with uh, a bunch of cousins. Uh, they're all boys. So I was one, I was the only, I was the only girl in probably a dozen boys and that's just how I grew up. And so, um, it's never felt strange to me. Um, I also played a lot of sports. And so, um, you know, I never felt out of place. Um, and I think you, you probably will hear this from a lot of uh, women in the business is um, they don't really think of gender. 
um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, I used to play a lot of tennis, right? Tennis and volleyball and whatnot. So number one, your team is crucial. Um, so it's, I wouldn't think of it more as men versus women, but how do you fit in your team, in your particular team? And the second thing is it comes down to what are your strengths and weaknesses, right? And we all have them regardless of gender. So I know this is sort of not a direct uh, answer, but I would just, you know, keep your eyes on the goal, uh, understand where you want to get to and just go for it. Yeah. And I, I love that way of thinking about things and the, and the, and the, the team and sports analogy, I think is one that many of us can relate to as well. Gwen, the, the second cultural topic that I wanted to ask about is, is this intersection of tech and bio, which is where you have spent the majority of your career. And, and in fact, you, I, I believe you even stated on your LinkedIn profile, which I love, by the way, that you are bilingual in computer science, programming languages, and wet lab research protocols. That's just a, a really cool way to describe it, right? Bilingual in those two different aspects. Can, can you talk about the importance of being able to speak those two languages? Um, so I have to give credit to Daphne Kohler because um, I heard her say during a talk, she said, you know, when she's hiring, um, she looks for damp scientists. And what she means by that are people that have that both have wet lab, you know, you can actually pipette, you can grow uh, cells in a, in a, in a Petri dish, um, or you actually, you have um, animal experience, right? Um, people that can do these type of lab work, plus they can also program. So that's sort of the, the, you know, so you don't want your, to get your computer wet. So, so that's the, that's the dry experience. So she calls them damp scientists. Um, so when I heard that, I was like, oh, that is true. Um, the other, uh, sort of um, way I think of this is uh, Vinod Kosla is, you know, head of Kosla Ventures, and he's had a tremendous amount of influence uh, in my way of thinking. He's always said that, you know, um, the most interesting discoveries happen at the nexus. And you'll see this, right, is that um, it's it's at the intersection of things where you see um, sort of the quickest, quickest next step for innovation, so um, that's hopefully, uh, that's where I'm aiming for. And to answer your question on the cultural merging of um, sort of traditional tech and biology, there's been a number of, you know, let's, let's just look at the number of innovations that's happened the last, not even 10 years, I would say the last seven years that's allowed this to happen. Um, one is definitely genomic sequencing, right? Um, you know, sequencing, if you go back 30 years, was cost a billion dollars to sequence the human genome. And they didn't even tell people that, oh, we only sequenced the 2%, right? The other 98%, we don't really know what it does. Um, and now we have one portfolio company called Ultima that has decreased the cost of sequencing to $100, that is tremendous. That means everyone can afford in, you know, developed countries can afford to pay to get their genome sequence and you're, you're sequencing your entire genome. Um, the sec the other thing is just the amount of compute, not just the amount of compute, the cost of compute that has come down, but also storage, right? I mean, people um, don't remember that back in 2014, AWS was not even a separate uh, business segment within Amazon, which meant that the revenue of AWS was less than 10%. It did not have to be sort of separated out. And now AWS is, you know, it's every startup uses AWS or Google or, you know, some of the, or, or any other competitor. So the, 
sort of the existence of these cloud storage means that you can actually start a company without having to um, store your data, analyze your data. You can just use it ad hoc as you as as is needed. So I think that has also allowed the creation of startups in biology, especially. Yeah, and I think it's it's just such an exciting space. And I, I want to dive into some more examples from your portfolio at, at Kosla. But in, in general, I, I want to go back and talk about your transition from Wall Street to venture investing and really specifically in terms of how differently do you need to think about value and value creation as you shifted from public markets to early stage private companies? Yeah, so um, it was really, so I was always into science. Um, you know, the the story that I've been told, I was so young that I don't really remember much of it, but my parents tell me this, but my maternal grandfather, um, he spent his entire first retirement check buying a microscope for me. So I must have been four or five, so that's why I don't remember much of it. But Apparently, I was always staring at things and playing with, you know, leaves and bugs and whatnot that, you know, he thought that was a good present to give me. Um, and looking back at some of my, you know, kid pictures, I was never looking at the camera. I was always looking down, analyzing something. So, you know, it's kind of funny, um, you know, kids always revert, people revert, revert back to what their childhood hobbies were. So um, it's definitely proof of that. Um, so I was always into just sciences in general, I call it STEM, um, because I like engineering as well. Um, and I think, you know, turning, switching into venture is really going back to uh, my original passions. Um, I went to Wall Street literally just because, you know, I, I grew up with no money, right? And so I think um, I needed to make sure that my family had enough for just had enough financial security, whether it's housing or food or, you know, I have a little sister who's 16 years younger than me. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, in case she needed someone to pay for her college education, there was money. Um, I worked 30 hours a week uh, to put myself through school or through college. So I didn't want anyone else to have to go through that. So, you know, and the interesting thing is 18 years was when my little sister graduated from college um, that same year, both my parents retired. And so, you know, the financial um, responsibility was no longer on me. It's not that they ever asked me to take that responsibility, but as the oldest, I, I sort of felt it. Um, and so that's when I realized, you know, there's more than there's more to life than making rich people richer. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. But at some point, you know, I wanted to sort of switch over to um, focusing on contributing to the common good. Um, I've always felt that contributing to the common good is the rent that we pay to live on this earth. And honestly, if everyone felt that way, um, we would be further. Uh, there, there, you know, there'd be a lot more positives in the world. And so I decided to start paying rent for living on this earth. Hmm. It's, it's, it's an amazing story. And I, I love the story you shared about your grandfather buying you the microscope. Um, it's paints such a, a vivid picture of, uh, of, of little Gwen back in the day. <laughs> Um, you know, so I, you know, Gwen, a long time ago, I, I made a transition from Wall Street and, and iBanking, I guess, as you described, the, the dark side to early stage <laughs> investing myself once upon a time. And, and there, there was, for me, a, a big transition to learn how to be less reliant on purely financial metrics and building detailed financial models and all the things that you typically do on Wall Street to value a company. And what I've learned over the years, right, when you're looking at a pre-revenue company that's developing some sort of novel science, 
that there's oftentimes a little more art to it. Um, and it seems like the earlier you go, the more, you know, quote unquote art there is involved in thinking about value and value creation. I'm wondering if you had a similar experience and, and if so, what sorts of things are you looking for in an early stage company these days? Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, so, um, I've clearly drank, uh, Vinod's, uh, the Coastal Ventures Kool-Aid, every drop of it. But I, I do think that, um, I do think that the best early stage VCs have some sort of a founder creator in them. Um, so, you, you know, what I don't put on LinkedIn is I actually um, almost started three companies. Um, so I was in the process of starting my own uh, fund. So that is, you know, that, you know, the, the docs are there. So I, I do put that on, on LinkedIn. But there were three biology companies that I was actually in the process of raising, uh, helping raise funding for. Uh, one of them actually got into indie bio, but we I ended up uh, starting the fund instead. But in the process of preparing the deck, you know, talking to the technical co-founders, um, actually coming up with, okay, this is really cool tech. How are we going to make money, right? What is the business model? Who are the customers? How do we reach those customers? Who, what other solutions are the customers uh, using? Who are who are you know, if we do raise half a million, who are the three hires we absolutely need? Who are the must-haves and who are the, you know, nice to have? And when do we hire them? Where do we uh, rent lab space? What's that going to cost us? What equipment do we need, right? This is all the nitty gritty stuff that is, you know, people think being a VC is really fancy schmancy. It's not. It, it's me calling 10 different lab spaces, trying to figure out what equipment they have, how much space, you know, lease terms, all that stuff. It's talking to patent attorneys and trying to shrink it into 15 minutes so that I don't get charged for if I go to 16 minutes, I get charged for another 15 minutes. It's, you know, stuff like that. And um, I think what, you know, so the question is, why do you want to deal with, you know, basically the, the nitty gritty work? Um, I think you have to be driven by a passion in something to to be able to go through uh, to be able to wade through the mud, right? Um, instead of delegating some, somebody else to do it. And what drives me is um, something Steve Jobs said, said that he's famous for is he said he realized that you can poke at life, that if you poke at it, it something comes out the other end. And that was what I was missing on the public equity side is I wasn't creating anything. You know, I was definitely shuffling papers around, right? <laughs> shuffling stock certificates around. Um, but if I wanted to create something, whether it's just, whether I know a solution needs to exist in the world or, you know, I know a company needs to pivot in a certain direction, I had zero control over that. I had zero influence into that. Um, whereas an early stage venture, because, you know, if you're willing to do the all the nitty gritty work, you create something, you put it into existence. So that's, you know, that's what drives me. Yeah. And I, I love that, Gwen. I, I had a similar, I think, epiphany when I was on Wall Street, where I, I really sort of felt like the, the the middleman or middle person sort of shuffling money from you know one area to another without actually really creating very much. And so uh, I, I do feel like I have much more of a sense of purpose being in the venture world and creating new businesses and all those things as, as well. So I can certainly relate. Let, let's dive into some of the investments that you're excited about at, at Kosla. Uh, maybe some of the companies or some of the technologies that you're particularly excited about. If you want to pick out two or three, love, love to learn a little more about those. I love our portfolio. <laughs> um, 
So I'd say that one of my favorite companies is actually Curai. Um, it's C-U-R-A-I. Um, so Curai, in full disclosure, uh, is the founder is Vinod Sun, but he actually went through YC first. So, you know, he did not get in just because, you know, he's he's Vinod's son. And Vinod is not um, on the board of that company. So if there's a decision that needs to be made on Curai, Vinod is not in the room. So there's definitely, you know, we keep a pretty strict wall there. Um, but the reason why I'm passionate about it is it's trying to replace primary care physicians. I don't want to say replace, right? It's really that we have a shortage of primary care in, in this country, um, just between how the payers work and, you know, it, incentives, right? Uh, primary care physicians do not get the, paid the most. And so, you know, um, for the amount of, for the number of hours and the amount of work they actually do, they're sort of they're overworked and they're underpaid. And so part of what Curie is trying to do is, look, there are some routine decisions um, that are made or diagnoses that are made by primary care physicians that can actually be made by AI. And so I'm, uh, so I, uh, you can probably tell from my background, I'm super passionate about health, sustainability, and AI. And so when you're passionate about certain areas, you try to combine them. And so I, you know, part of me definitely wants to um, combine AI and health healthcare. Um, so many of healthcare decisions can be automated. Um, I also, the other area I'm super passionate about in terms of um, sort of uh, physician decision-making is, you know, I've never been, I've, I'm not a doctor, but I almost went to medical school. So I took the MCAT. I worked at UCSF two years, um, essentially, to prepare me to, to, I worked for a neurosurgeon because I was thinking about um, either neurosurgery or neurology. But um so full disclosure, I do not have an MD, uh, but I, I am uh, very interested in the area. One of the things that my doctor friends tell me is they, they're they always taught to think when they hear um, hoof beats, they think they're taught to think of horses, not zebras, which is true, right? Because it's a probability thing. However, nobody thinks about what is the consequence of wrong, right? And so I think that should be... Um, part of the decision-making process. And I understand why it's not is, you know, when you're, when doctors only have four minutes per patient that you just don't have the mental capacity to do that. However, AI does. Right. And so these are, I'm just giving one example where AI can be used um, to make physicians' lives better and as well as patients. So that's one company. Sorry. One or two follow-up questions about that. Cause I find this, this whole sort of intersection really Fascinating. And, I, and I've heard Vinod make some public comments about the role of AI in healthcare, either complementing or potentially replacing physicians. Could, could you talk about what Curai was doing and if that technology is really meant to complement or augment what primary care physicians are doing? Or do you see that as, as a vehicle to potentially replace what they're doing? You know, I, I think it's always going to be a complement, right? Is um, I think. Uh, there are always going to be edge cases where um, I, I think AI is a very good prompt, but there's going to be a period where the training, it's exactly like autonomous driving, right? It's not just one day all cars go autonomous. There's a transition period and it's always, you know, we have a couple of companies in actually autonomous driving data. It's And people talk about this. I'm, I'm not the one that came up with this, but it's the last 2%. It's the 2% edge cases that take the most amount of time. So it's it's not the 80-20 rule. It's the 98-2 rule, right? Is that 
you know, the 98% of the data you can gather that in, you know, maybe not 2% of the time, but maybe 10% of the time, the other 2% of the edge cases take you a lot longer. So I think, you know, for the edge case data gathering, it's definitely, you know, we need physicians in the loop. If we look at if we look if we look out ten years from now, I think maybe a lot of the you know common diagnoses can be done by an AI. Yeah, and I think it was Eric Topol who probably first wrote about this. But the 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 use of AI medicine, I think, in many ways, as as you you'll rightfully point out, can be a, a tool to aid physicians in things like diagnosis, which could actually free up a lot of their time to spend more time with the patient, right, and providing that that sort of bedside manner, human element, and that that sort of empathetic connection that obviously AI is not going to provide, but physicians obviously spend so much time doing other things that they're not doing probably as much of, of that as they could these days. So I, I really like thinking about it that way. Um, okay, Gwen, let, let's talk about another another company or two you're excited about at, at Postal. Yeah. Um, so this company, Synchron, um, I really like partly because I did shadow a neurosurgeon for two years. Um, and so it it's going for a human computer interface, not through the skull. Uh, there's no, there's no drilling of the skull. The dura isn't penetrated. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, this is going to work. And I came through that conclusion because in neurosurgery, I shadowed a neurosurgeon that um, uh, took out uh, grade four glioblastoma. And so, and so during these neurosurgeries, we always had to put in a shunt because when um, when you penetrate the skull and the dura, when you disturb the brain, there's a lot of inf- inflammation and you have to put in a shunt because a lot of liquids get flushed out, right? And so it's um, the brain actually swells. And so you, and you don't want to put, leave the shunt in there. Um, uh, you want to take it out within a week, maximum two weeks. And so I knew this about the brain. So as soon as I saw Synchron's approach, I knew that it was, it had a huge advantage versus um, other human brain computer interface where you actually have to penetrate the skull. And so surely enough, Synchron's already in two humans. Um, it's doing fantastically well. Um, so it's, uh, I, I think this is going to be the winning approach. Gwen, is there another portfolio company or two that you'd like to talk about? Yeah. Um, so a company I put into the portfolio this year uh, in 2022 is called Ravella. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to my earlier point about combining my favorite areas, it was really a combination of AI, robotics, and biology, right? All of my, all of my favorite areas. Essentially, they're taking phenotypic drug screening um, to consumer products, right? And it's now possible because uh, phenotypic screening used to take billions of dollars and 10 years in a pharma company. But now with, you know, another one of our portfolio companies is Opentrons. So now with the advent of high throughput screening and uh, Opentrons is $5,000 for one of these, you know, uh, liquid handling robots, it's real, it's, it's reachable. I mean, you can buy one for your garage if you wanted to. Um, and also the ability to use AI to screen, to look at cells instead of humans looking at cells. So that's dramatically taken down the cost of drug screening for, or at least phenotypic screening by 40X um, versus, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So that's made it possible for a company to use this technology for consumer products because otherwise it's just not cost effective, right? You got to, you got to find a billion dollar drug for, to, to warrant spending a billion dollars, but now they can spend minimal dollars and get the same level of efficacy for a compound and use it in a consumer product. Um, Super. I think the other great thing about early stage venture is um, you get to work with uh, the founders. Um, 
They are extremely driven, hardworking, dedicated people. Um, and you know, some founders are actually really receptive to uh, to feedback as well. And so, one of the advisors we got um, after we invested is actually um, is actually the former uh, head of FDA for. Uh, both grass and OTC compounds, right? So this guy drafted the, FD, the FDA papers for how do you get a drug to market and whatnot. So we really wanted him because I wanted to make sure that we actually do all the right things. Um, but, you know, the the company has been uh, tripling in revenue every year. It's doing fantastically. And it just got a, a new term sheet for another round. It's very cool. Very cool technology. Um one of the questions I want to ask you is in, in the world that you're investing in at Kosla, it's, it's pretty common to see scientific founders running an early stage company. Many of these folks, however, may lack management experience, which may be a positive or a negative thing, depending on your perspective. But I'm, I'm curious, what do you look for in the management team of early stage companies? And do you look to build out their capabilities if they're lacking in certain areas? Or do you intend to bring in more seasoned management teams to, uh, who have sort of that you know, professional C-suite experience at some point? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I can tell you how I, I, I sort of approach this. Um, you know, it may not be how everyone approaches this, but, uh, and this possibly could be because of my experience at IndieBio, which is a biotech accelerator. So it's very early stage, first check-in, um, you know, they actually provide you with temporary lab space so that you can just, you know, walk in, um, incorporate your company and just, uh, st- start going. Um, or it could be because, you know, I actually almost started three biotech companies as the non-technical co-founder, right? Um, it could be one of these, my background experiences, but, um, the way I approach it, approach this is I start talking to the postdocs, the professors, um, you know, even undergrad students, I start talking to them very early. Um, most of the conversations I have, they have not incorporated. They have not, you know, I, I'm walking folks through on, um, how do you talk to, uh, your tech transfer office? You know, what are the terms that you really need to get and what are the terms you can give? Um, you know, so there's a lot of coaching going on. Um, it, it, you know, I think, I think for maybe for maybe for for Vinod or, you know, the other more senior uh, senior partners, it's not worth their time. But I find it pretty rewarding um, to to um, spend my time and try to coach folks through this process. Um, You know, there are there are definitely guides out there as well, but um, every school is different. Right. And so I've actually negotiated with 40 schools, 40 universities globally um, on tech transfers. So I actually have a slight um, I actually know sort of what ranges um, they can expect. And that's been super helpful to, to tell, um, to be able to uh, tell professors or uh, grad students on, you know, this is what you can, is, can expect. Um, this is what you need to get to, to, to get funded. Um, and then the other thing I really spend a lot of time working with folks is I think I love scientists. I mean, they are, they have such brilliant brains, right? And they come up with all these technological solutions that are just extraordinary. Um, but it's a hammer looking for a nail. And so you have to be patient enough to chat with the hammer inventors to figure out what's the best nail. So that, that's essentially a lot of my job, right? Is um, And the way I do that is I talk to a lot of corporates. I look at, you know, what's going on in the market, uh, where ex- 
where established companies are struggling with their solutions. So that's a nail, right? Where the hammer can fit. Gwen, I, I want to pick up on on a, th- a thread from your previous answer where you talked about working with tech transfer offices, sort of, you know, walking the halls, talking with postdocs, professors, even before a company has been formed. So it sounds like you have quite a bit of experience in that space. And so you're doing a lot of you know, company creation, it's, it sounds like. And so my, my question is, do, do you see the emergence of what we now call sort of the tech bio companies as something culturally different or unique from traditional biotech company creation, right? Because biotech company creation has been around for a long time. I'm curious, is that what you see yourself doing or do you see yourself doing something slightly different? Um, so I'll, I'll say two things. Number one is I cannot take this credit. Um, so Coastal has actually done a lot of incubation. Um, so, you know, the two most well-known cases, um, uh, sort of companies, uh, Impossible Foods, um, uh, Professor Pat Brown actually walked in with pretty much nothing, right? He had a really great idea. He was willing to give up his Howard Hughes. He was willing to give up his, you know, tenure position at Stanford to um, eliminate animal husbandry, right? And to Vinod and Samir's credit, they saw something in him in 30 minutes and wrote him a check. Um, I do not have that level of, of, uh, of, of confidence. Uh, it would have taken me a lot longer, but you know, this is why they're Vinod and Samir. Um, the second company is uh, Rocket Lab. So Pete, uh, fantastic CEO. Um, he's, you know, both of these folks are still, you know, at the helm. Um, uh, he had no traditional aeronautical engineering experience, never worked at NASA. Um, but Sven, who is another uh, one of our four managing directors, also saw something in Pete and actually sent Pete to live on NASA base with one of Sven's close friends. Um, just to learn, you know, just to, you know, it's like, oh, you're, you're clearly interested in this area. Let me help you um, with some background. At the end of those two weeks, this NASA friend quit his job at NASA to join Pete. Right. And so there's like, wow. there's, there's, um, so, I mean, these are just fantastic stories that, you know, I wish more people heard about, but we do a lot of incubation. I think, you know, you don't really hear about these stories because, um, you know, until we write about them or until I tell you about them, they're sort of, um, you know, they, they sort of stay hidden a little bit. Um, so to Coastal's credit, we've always done a lot of incubation. Um, to answer the second part is, you know, as a whole, as a sector, are we seeing more of these? I think given what I said earlier about um, the decrease in cost, both in lab space, you can get co-working lab space now, right? You know, 20 years ago, this may not be that popular. <laughs> you know, nobody really, you know, shared their sequencing machines or, you know, um, it, even t- now today, you know, a sequencing machine might be $300,000. Um, but now this is, you know, with Alexandria, with um, Biolabs, with IndieBio, it's it's common to share lab space and equipment. So that's decreased the cost of starting a biotech company from, you know, you got to raise 25 million to start anything to half a million. That's doable. Um, I think the other thing that's happened is, um, you know, we're a little bit more flexible on 
what are the different milestones, um, sort of the intermediate milestones before you need to bring in, if you are going for pharma, right? I'm just using pharma as, a, as an example, before you have to bring in a pharma executive team, right? It's it's no longer day one. It might be when you're in the clinic. It might be, you know, after series A. And so that's also, um, this is a shift that didn't happen until easily probably five years ago is, you know, when I saw the real shift here. And Gwen, as you look across the emerging technology landscape today, the types of technologies and companies that you're looking at at Kosla that are in your portfolio, that you're that are maybe in the diligence process, what what excites you the most? Um, everything, which is why I'm always working. <laughs> like people are asking me, "Oh, what are you doing this holiday?" And I'm like, "Nothing." <laughs> I'm reading, I'm reading pitch decks. I'm forwarding pitch decks to the rest of my team. I'm scheduling calls. Um, uh, what I struggle with is time. Uh, you know, I wish I had more energy and time to do more work. Um, I think, you know, every single, definitely at least every single week, uh, sometimes even every day, there's new technology and I'm trying to merge them, right? You know, we had a really, we've had several uh, in-depth team meetings on LLM. Um, so this is the the huge, uh, um, this is chat, chat GPT, this large language models that's been taking over Twitter and the rest of the world. Um, so clearly, you know, we have half of our team is working on on that area. Uh, but me being passionate about uh, about biology and health, I'm trying to tweak it to 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 serve the needs of healthcare, right? And so, um, this is definitely if you're if you love thinking and creating, this is an endless job. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it sounds like you have your hands full, and I, I think it was. Um... I think it was Josh Wolf who said in, in a tweet, you know, the only thing that he thinks about more than portfolio allocation is time allocation. And I, I think, I think it's so true. You know, time, time is, is, is scarce and it's hard, hard to come by as, as you well know. Um, so, you know, Gwen, I think we could probably talk for the next, next couple of days here, but I do want to be cognizant of your time and wrap up as, as you look to the future, let's say over the next, you know, five to 10 years, are there certain sectors or technology trends that you're most excited about, whether it could be the application of AI or things in regen med or anything along those areas over sort of what I would call the you know, medium term? And then also, if you had a crystal ball to look out the next 50 years, are there, are there things that you think um, would be really transformational that you're, you're looking at today? Um. So I'll, I'll say that there are definitely societal problems that needs to be solved by policy or, you know, international coordination that I am not apt to speak of, right? And it's arguably, you know, these problems are bigger than the problems I'm trying to solve, but I'm focusing on the problems uh, that I'm passionate about because I feel like technology can actually solve them. And so those are the two passion areas of mine, which is health, um, global health, human health, animal health, um, but also planetary health, right? Sustainability and whatnot. Um, so these are the two causes I'm super passionate about. And then I think about tools, which is robotics and AI are actually tools. Um, I don't think of those as areas. I think of them as tools that can help solve those causes. And so that's where, um, you know, I'm always trying to merge these, these four things, um, and I think um, if I had a crystal ball for the next 50 years, um, 
I think hopefully in 50 years, I do see a little bit more global coordination in um, in carbon emissions and in sustainability because I think, you know, we're all starting to to feel um, climate change a little bit more than even five years ago. Um, I do think that um, both AI and robotics will play a bigger part of our lives, definitely in 50 years, um, hopefully in 10 years. Um, I mean, we have so many great companies uh, in the portfolio that um, – are coming to a city near you, right? And so we have Glideways <laughs> that is, um, you know, it's autonomous autonomous cart that can drive you anywhere. Um, we have uh, Wabi, which is trying to work on the two percent edge case of autonomous driving, right? And so, I mean, these are I, I can I can go on, but I'll also I'll spare you the four hundred and thirty seven portfolio companies. <laughs> no, I, I love talking about all this stuff. So, so Gwen, finally, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about Kosla and your investment thesis, how can how can people learn more or, or or learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you a secret. All of our emails are are our initials, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can you can find all of us. So I'm oh, GC. be careful giving out your email. <laughs> <laughs> I'm GC at coastalventures.com, but our emails um, are also on our website. Um, so if you click on any of the uh, investment partners, um, our emails are actually on there. Wonderful. And then uh, that, that and and are you on social media, uh, Twitter at all, or? Uh, I do not tweet very much. Uh, okay. I am on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I don't. I don't post as much. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a reader than a than a poster. You and me both, Gwen. You and me both. Okay. Well, Gwen, I think we we better leave it there. So, Gwen, I really want to thank you for your time today and a, a really great, wide ranging discussion. This has been very fun. Thank you for having me. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a really great and wide ranging discussion with, with Gwen. You know, one of the things that she mentioned a few times, but you know, particularly at the end, was her view of things like artificial intelligence as not really being areas or different verticals. They're just simply tools. And so I, I really appreciate that perspective. You know, the, these are all different technologies or tools that can improve some area of healthcare. And you heard her talk about the example from, from the Coastal portfolio. Um, using AI to help complement what primary care physicians are doing, for example. So it's, it's really, it's a tool. It's a means to an end. It's not a, it's not his own vertical. It's not his own area, uh, but it's one tool in the arsenal out of a variety of different tools. So I, I really, I like that perspective. I'm kind of in that same camp, but I'm thinking that given that she straddled both the tech and biotech worlds, Rather than giving her insight into technology per se, do you think that gives her better insight into the culture of these companies? I think so. You know, we didn't get too into some of the cultural nuances of these companies, but I would absolutely say, as, as Gwen likes to say, being bilingual in both the, the technology and computer programming languages, as well as the wet lab space, absolutely. That's got to give her some insight into some of the cultural nuances and potentially some of the cultural difficulties that we see in some of these companies where there are people from dis different disciplines that often speak two different languages. And how do you get them to communicate effectively in a company culture? So being, as Gwen says, bilingual in those two areas, absolutely will give her an advantage in how cultures are developed and, and probably you know what she's looking for out of management teams to develop those cultures. I thought a lot of her insights into her career journey were interesting. But one comment that really struck me was her 
contrasting what she did on Wall Street to what she's doing now and the sense of purpose she feels from being involved in the creation of meaningful technologies and companies rather than what she described as pushing papers. Did that strike a chord with you? It, it did. And you heard me sort of respond to that, Danny, because I had a very similar experience when I was on Wall Street. You know, the thing that I loved the most was working with management teams, learning about different business models, doing diligence, learning about the science. And to me, that was the most compelling aspect of what I did on, on Wall Street. But I did in many ways feel like a sort of a middleman. And as Gwen said, sort of shuffling papers, papers back and forth without really creating anything. And so as I transitioned, it sounds like I had a very similar experience to Gwen, where now as a venture investor, you're helping to create something new in the world that hasn't existed to build new businesses, develop new technology from the ground up. And there, there is something very satisfying from that. And I think you heard Gwen say that gave her more of a sense of purpose. And, and I can certainly sympathize with that because I feel the exact same way. Um, so I, I do think it, it, is, it is definitely a, a mental shift. Um, and it's really nice to hear Gwen has found, you know, a career path where she does derive a lot of, of purpose from what she loves doing and an area that she really loves learning and thinking about. Obviously, she spends a ton of time you know, thinking about this stuff and, and learning about these different areas. And you heard her talk about passion and how important passion is. And, and I couldn't agree more. Right. I mean, pa passion is often the biggest predictor of success because. You want to learn more. You are curious. You want to ask questions. You want to spend extra time. Um, and so, you know, I, th I think for Gwen, I think it's really wonderful that she's, she's sort of found that role where she can be passionate about an area of her career that she has spent so much time, but has purpose in her existing role of, of creating something new. You also asked her about her thinking on the management of startups, the scientific founder versus the experienced manager. What, what did you think of her response? Yeah. I, I mean, I thought obviously they do a lot of incubation and company creation at, at Coastline. So, you know, each, each firm is different and has their own sort of philosophy, but sounds like they absolutely. And, and Gwen rolls up, you know, her, her sleeves. And this has been done at Coastline for sounds like a long time now where they're, you know, roaming the halls of academia, talking to postdocs, talking to professors, you know, actually helping with the technology transfer process and licensing process, you know, really incubating the early stage companies. And, and so, you know, obviously it has worked very well for them. So each case is, is unique in terms of the scientific founder versus bringing on a, you know, a seasoned CEO, for example. We didn't get into too many of those nuances and timing around those decisions, but obviously they have a playbook they've been following that has worked extraordinarily well. Well, until next time. All right. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge Inc. or its affiliates. 
The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable. Neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.